The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And here's what's coming up on this fascinating Friday. Stocks, they are mixed right now. The Dow is down, but green for the S&P 500 and NASDAQ. And maybe a little good news. September is over. Mercifully, the Dow ending its worst month since March of 2020 and its worst September in 20 years. Given we had more inflation data and stocks are mostly higher, is that a good sign going forward? Today is Sheryl Sandberg's final day as an employee of Facebook. We'll look at the company and the stock without her and ask, Mark Zuckerberg is really the right person to still lead that company into the metaverse. And Jay Powell said there would be pain as the Fed raises rates, and he's been right. We've got three buys and a bail, companies which can take the Fed and one that can't. All that's ahead in the next 59 minutes, but let's begin. Dom Chu and the market numbers and a flip-floppy, topsy-turvy thing going on. Yeah, and we're smack dab in the middle of it. And I'll tell you the reason why. Because for the S&P 500, to Brian's point, we're just about flat on the session, now down two measly points on the whole day so far, 36.38. But at the highs of the session, we were up 31 points. And at the lows of the session, we were down 26. So almost equal in terms of upside and downside. And again, just right in the middle of that right now. So this trading range hasn't been particularly volatile. But if you are bullish on the market, you might say maybe this is a good sign. Stability in an otherwise very dismal month for the overall market. As Brian points out, the Dow Industrials down 135 points, one half of 1% of the downside, 29,091. The Nasdaq Composite outperforming up about one quarter of 1%, 24 points, 10,761. Another place that's trying to find some sense of stability right now amidst a massive downtrend over the course of the last several months and maybe even year at this point is the seven semiconductor index. We pointed out yesterday on this program and in Power Lunch that the Vanek Vector semiconductor ETF hit a new 52-week low in yesterday's trade. We are, at least for now, just about flat on the session. We are now losing momentum in that semiconductor trade, although we did see some outperformance in names like NVIDIA, Advanced Micro, Lam Research, and others. So keep an eye on semiconductors. Some traders still look at this area as an indicator for sentiment in the overall market, specifically in tech for sure. Watch that Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF. And then the stock of the day, the biggest drag on the Dow by far, by a huge factor, is Nike. Those shares down 11 12% right now, $84.07. And this is on the heels of an earnings report that was generally positive, but many investors and shareholders and analysts are keying in on the inventory build. It surged 44% on its balance sheet over the course of this past quarter. It means that Nike says they'll have to discount many of their goods heading to the holiday season, the all-important one there. All of that weighing on that stock. Greater China sales also showing some signs of real slowdown there. So we'll keep an eye on Nike shares. By the way, Brian, at this pace right now, Nike could be on pace for its worst year on record as a public company. We'll keep an eye on that. I'll send things back over to you. Wow. Everybody, nobody could get anything. Then they overordered. Now they have too much of everything and have to discount. Dom Chu, thank you very much. All right, now let's get a little more macro globally. Stocks eh, sort of popping back today, although the minute I wrote that, I knew that the markets were going to turn south, and sure enough, they are. The Nasdaq's going to be negative in about two minutes. 
Anyway, new data indicating that inflation accelerated even more than expected last month. The Fed's preferred inflation gauge called the Personal Consumption Expenditures, better known to you and I as the PCE, it increased 0.6% in August after being flat in July. But if you think things are bad here with inflation, you know, it is much worse overseas. Prices in the UK, the EU, they are soaring above even our levels. A number of central banks around the world are hiking interest rates in the global battle to try to tame inflation. Your next guest says that despite that, what's going on may have disastrous consequences, and the U.S. is not immune to these global waves of uncertainty. Let's bring in now Greg Dacko. He is chief economist at EY Parthenon. Greg, I like to keep Fridays a little bit on the optimistic side, right? Nobody wants to go to the weekend feeling all like the Grim Reaper. That said, and I've sort of been talking about this for months or more than a year now, what's happening in Europe cannot be understated, can it? And there is a contagion risk from Europe to us, yes or no? Yes, absolutely. I think we, we should not think of the U.S. economy as being uh, an island that's isolated from the rest of the world. Um, as you said correctly, what happens in the rest of the world ends up washing on our shores. Uh, we are in this very unique environment where what we're seeing is a globally synchronized but uncoordinated tightening of monetary policy around the world. All central banks are really aiming to regain control over inflation. And this tightening that's happening at a very rapid pace will likely have consequences that we don't know yet of. Um, and I think there is a real risk that there is, uh, could be a more significant and more pronounced tightening of financial conditions, which has more dire effects on economic activity we, than we, we, we are Well, we, I, have been tough on Jay Powell, tough on Janet Yellen, not as human beings, but just in their job. It appears they're not good. At, at that job. In, in, the, in Europe, it's still many of the same, Christine Lagarde, it's like the same names for the last five or 10 years. Do you think the market has confidence in these people? Should, does the mar- should the market have confidence in these people who were there when things went awry? Well, I think we're, we're right to be uh, looking at what central banks are doing with a, a lot of attention, because what central bankers will be doing over the next few months will be key in determining the global outlook um, and the space, the, the pace of the slowdown. We are in an environment where a lot of central banks are having to play catch up in terms of monetary policy tightening, um, but they all seem to be quite credible in their intent to regain control over inflation, even, and, and, and I would add, especially if... Yep. It adds pain in the form of slower economic activity. That's really the goal of most central bankers today is essentially to curb demand because, as we know, they have very little power in terms of reestablishing supply. So they're really weighing on demand. The question is, how capable are they of managing a soft landing in this environment? Well, we're going to find out. I want to go outside of that. Obviously, you know what happened with the Nord Stream pipelines this week. Norway's flying fighter jets over some of its oil platforms in the North Sea today. J.P. Morgan Chase, Marco Kalanovic, they talked about it at halftime, came out with a note. I'm going to summarize it, read one line from it. The destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines this week is an event that significantly increases tail risk and makes it difficult to de-escalate. Many believe the current situation is similar to the Cuban Missile Crisis back in the early 60s. Is that overstating it, Greg? I think we're certainly living in a world where geopolitical tensions remain extremely elevated, where you're seeing aggravated fragmentation in terms of of global powers around the world. 
uh, and one in which navigating this uncertainty will be increasingly difficult from a business perspective. Um, and I think that as we look into the winter, uh, we're likely to see pretty significant disruptions in terms of energy flows, in terms of um, output uh, coming from, from Europe. We know that in Asia, there are also weights uh, on economic activity because of the disruptions to uh, activity in China. So we are in the midst of a highly uncertain and highly susceptible global environment, yep. which will have effects on economic activity in the U.S. So those, those, those developments that you just talked about are key and central to developments in the U.S., even if there aren't apparent direct ties between the two. Yeah, well, there's about 10% of S&P 500 company revenues do come from Europe. Some of those revenues, you got to believe, are at risk. Greg Daco, we appreciate your views. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, got a news alert out of Washington for you, and maybe some good news. The government will not shut down. The stopgap funding bill to avoid a partial shutdown now has enough votes in the House to pass. They got the green light in the Senate yesterday afternoon, so the government will continue to roll on. We'll call that good news. All right, now back to stocks. Markets getting ready to say good riddance to a brutal September. Take a look at some of the ugly numbers. The Dow and the S&P 500 falling 7% this month. The NASDAQ is down 8%. It is the worst September for the Dow since 2002. Yeah, believe it or not, the Dow had a worse month than September of 2008, right when the financial crisis was really just starting to kick off. All three indices, they're on track for a third straight quarterly loss, something we have not seen in years. But let's get a little more optimistic. We had some bad inflation data again today, and stocks, they're not selling off in a big way. Dow's down 100 points. Joining us is Joanne Feeney, partner and portfolio manager at Advisors Capital Management, and Matt Maley, chief market strategist at Miller Tayback. Matt, it's good to have you back on. I had this whole thing planned where I was going to be like, ooh, the markets are up nicely, even with the bad inflation data. Is that a good sign? But now the markets are turning on me and turning on everybody, by the way. But you get my point. If we can even stay sort of flat-ish with hot inflation data, is that maybe a near-term sign that we're just way oversold? Well, it certainly could be. I mean, one of the things is that, you know, the market is getting oversold and and, and the one thing that's, it's, I mean, sentiment is, is getting ridiculously bearish. Uh, so those are the types of things you, you do see, tend to see at a bottom. One thing I am concerned about, though, is if we do have some sort of a blow up, you know, the, the second leg of bear markets are, are, are when we have those when, when Enron shows up or Bernie Madoff shows up and, and causes some, some liquidations to take place. And I also know that even though September is usually the worst day of the year, when September's are really, really tough, the bottom usually comes at some point in October. October ends up being a better month, but that bottom comes, t- tends to come then. So I, at some point, even if we may c- could see a short-term bounce soon, I do think uh, we'll probably see lower lows before too long. Okay, lower lows. Yikes. All right, look, Joanne, let's, again, let's try to be a little more optimistic on this Friday, shall we? Um, I know something about inventories. My wife works in consumer products and and sort of retail-ish. We talked about it with Nike. When a company has too much of anything, they try to sell it off. A big beneficiary of that tends to be a company like a TJ Maxx, does it not? They get to buy all that excess inventory and the cheap. You, You buy it for less than retail. You feel good. They feel good. Is that a stock you like? Yeah. Hey, Brian, TJ Maxx is a pretty good place to be at this point in time. I mean, when you have a recession threat, you do see consumers shifting down to cheaper opportunities. And TJ Maxx not only has that inventory that they can dip into and get at relatively low cost, but they're also, I think, going to see more sustained demand than some of the higher 
end retailers out there. So good place to hide. You know, it has a good opportunity here. It's it's been outperforming. You know, and I, I think that investors have to decide right now whether they're in it for the long haul, which they ought to be, and how perhaps to take advantage of some of the opportunities that have come along yep. uh, in this market. And Joanne, what about a McDonald's as well? Yeah, McDonald's is another good sort of recession resilient play. You know, people shift down from those mid-market, uh, you know, casual food restaurants down to a McDonald's. You know, they're taking advantage of that and they're extremely well run company and the loyalty program has been going very well. So, again, another company with a good dividend. You know, one of the things to do in this kind of a market is to make sure your dividend income is not just going to sustain some of your cash flow, but those dividends are going to be raised, you know, over time. And, and McDonald's has been very good at that. Yeah. And time is the time is our friend, Matt. Is it not? I mean, if we look at a company like a Google slash Alphabet, whatever you want to call them, I mean, I know this, when markets have, have crumbled during recessions in 2000, 2008, whatever, five years down the road, the average is a double for the S&P 500. I mean, if you love Google in 10 years, you maybe dollar cost average into it now. Oh, I totally agree, Brian. I mean, I mean, one of the things is we look at the, I hate to say it, but like a stock like Apple on a historical basis is still somewhat expensive, even though it's come down a lot recently. Google, now it's trading only 18 times earnings. Yeah, that's a little bit of a premium to the market multiple, but it deserves that. And, and so if you buy, this is a stock, you, know, you, st- you don't want to necessarily back up the truck because we have all sorts of things going on in the marketplace right now. But you buy a little each, each month over the next six, nine, 12 months. Boy, your average price over that time is going to look real good three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And, uh, you know, you say that the, the, the market could overall double, but the really good companies, they're going to triple, quadruple, et cetera, uh, off those lows. Off the lows. You've got to have some powder dry. you got to maybe have a Dramamine and a thick stomach because it could be wild the next few months. Joanne Feeney and Matt Maley, thank you both. Have a great weekend. All right, let's take a look at oil and the oil markets because we had the, it is Friday, 1 o'clock, the Baker Hughes rig count numbers come out and U.S. oil drillers cut oil rigs in September for the first month since July of 2020. There you go, Baker Hughes rig count there. Basically, we'll call it a flat-ish number because you look at two things. You look at oil rigs across America and then you look at oil rigs sort of in the Permian Basin of Texas by itself because that's where the growth is supposed to be coming from, although the latest data there shows not so U.S. total rig count up one from the previous week. There we go. Gas rigs down one. So we'll call that flat. All right, coming up, the Fed showing no signs of backing off its fight against inflation. So what stocks can handle the sharp rise in rates? We've got a Fed pain edition of three buys and a bail. But first, Sheryl Sandberg stepping down as COO of Meta today. And your next guest thinks that Mark Zuckerberg should follow her out the door. Tell you why, coming up. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. It really is the end of an era at Meta slash Facebook for longtime COO Sheryl Sandberg, who is officially stepping down from the company today. This comes, the stock's been just getting crushed this year. Investors have lost nearly 60% of their money if they've held on and bought near the top. The company recently announced a hiring freeze, and its latest earnings disappointed on both the top and the bottom lines. So what happens next? Can Mark Zuckerberg really handle this change? And what about the stock? Joining us now is Jason Helfstein. He is Managing Director of Internet Equity Research at Oppenheimer. And Bill George, of course, former CEO of Medtronic, senior fellow at the Harvard Business School, also the author of a new book. It's called True North, the Emerging Leader Edition. He's also a CNBC contributor. Bill, we're going to kick it off with you. Congratulations on the book. Appreciate that. Um, Facebook grew wildly for, since its inception, but it grew mostly because People talked about, are you on Facebook? What's that? I like it. Then they got on it. We always thought Mark Zuckerberg was this sort of magician. Now they're undergoing what I call the new Coke moment. It kind of feels they're trying to change their entire company. Can he handle it? (laughs) I don't know. I I think it's time for major changes, Brian. Uh, Mark uh, signaled back in March that he in some ways realized that Facebook's uh, time of growth was over. And he was going to focus on uh, on metaverse, and that's where all his excitement, all his energy is going into that. As you know, it's costing about ten billion dollars a year running rate. I think it's time for Mark to uh, give up the CEO title. He can stay as chair of the board and focus on the metaverse and be the creative genius he is, and really bring in a CEO who can run what we used to know as Facebook, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp and really run the social media. And I think it's time for a whole yeah. new business model that a new seat could bring in. And I, I'd I, like to I see I know, that. Bill, we know um, that CEOs, you guys, make a lot of money, okay? And there's been a lot of criticism about the CEO pay. Mark obviously founded the company, so he's one of the richest people on the planet. His grandchildren's grandchildren, grandchildren will never have to work if, if they don't want to. Talk to us about being a CEO. I understand you make a lot of coin. No one's going to feel sorry for you. But it's a 24-7 job, right? I mean, it just probably it ultimately just beats you up. And Mark's getting older. You know, it's got to wear on him. He's been CEO, Brian, for 19 years. That's a very long time. Okay, he's only 38 years old. But uh, I think that that's why I think it's time. He needs a partner. He had a partner in Sheryl Sandberg. And after the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke in 18, he kind of pushed her aside. And so now with her retirement... He's all alone at the top. And by the way, his board's not like a real board. It's more of an advisory board. He needs a much stronger board. He needs to listen to some very strong, some former CEOs can come on his board uh, as well. So I think, uh, yeah, it's a very tough job. And Mark said, uh, I think on Joe Rogan's show, every morning I don't like to turn on my computer. It feels like getting punched in the gut. That's just not a happy guy to me. No. And so uh, he'd be a lot happier if he had a partner and uh, who he really delegated authority to. I don't mean just uh, somebody else the title CEO. I mean a real CEO who's really strong-willed. Yeah, and maybe didn't move permanently to Hawaii, People are, get people off his back. He's getting hassled in San Francisco, whatever it may be. Bill George, appreciate you coming on. Thank you for the book, or uh, congratulations on the book. And I'll say thanks. Maybe you can send me a copy. Bill George, thank you very much. All right. Good. Thank you. I'll send you one. Oh, very cool. Appreciate it, Bill. All right, now let's talk about the stock. Meta, 
It is down 61% off its 52-week high. It is trading below the pandemic low. It is one of the worst performers on the S&P 500 this year. So if you own it, what do you do? If you're poking around, what do you do? Let's bring in Jason Helfstein. He is Managing Director of Internet Research at Oppenheimer. He's got outperform a 190 price target. Um, at some point, Jason, this stock is, again, we said it yesterday with a different company. It's got to stop going down. doesn't mean it will go up. I mean, how long can this bleeding last? It does feel like a new Coke moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you highlighted how, how much the stock is down. I mean, it's down well below kind of other large um, tech growth stocks because of the, the headwinds they face. So, um, and, and let's start out, right? Apple really did this company a significant disservice with the changes they made around privacy and the implications on ad targeting. Um, really, you know, if I look at numbers, um, Meta underperformed its peers by 27 percentage points in revenue growth in the second quarter of 21. Um, and it's still underperforming, but the, in the most recent quarter, underperformed by eight percentage points. So it's getting less bad. At some point, the market will realize that. And I actually think, and we can talk about it if, if you want, there, there is kind of uh, a product coming that Apple's relaunching that um, should allow Meta to get back some of the lost signal, which should help them recapture lost ad dollars. Okay, let's talk about it. I want to know what that product is. And, and if our viewers are maybe a little confused about what you're talking about, if you download a new app, you know, you, an app on your phone, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, and, you know, it says you got that button which popped up about a year ago, ask app not to track. That's part of what you're talking about, correct? That little change correct. was like a small spark that turned into a conflagration for Facebook. Correct. And so Facebook has said effectively that change cost them about 10% of their revenue, right? So if you then kind of put a multiple on that, and you're thinking about, well, the stock has underperformed its peers by like 30 points, you could kind of start to, to, to go there, right? And there are other factors, and we can talk about TikTok as well in a second. But the product that Apple is effectively updating is called FK Ad Network. Um, it is code that publishers can use or, our, or um, apps can use to understand how effective um, app ads and download ads are. And so the new version called 4.0 and upgrade to 3.0 is going to add back a lot of the functionality that Apple took away. Uh, okay. Why is Apple doing this? There's a number of opinions out there. Some people think Apple went too far in restricting privacy and was acting monopolistic, and it could have triggered um, government uh, kind of action or oversight. Or, or maybe the fact that Apple realizes they want to build an ad business and they can't have tons of data on the consumer and everybody else has none, right? Because yeah. that, that you know, wouldn't be fair. So we so Apple announced this at the developer day. There's been a lot discussed about this, written about it, but we don't know when it's relaunching. But once it does, we think Meta will be the biggest beneficiary. And when I add that to all of the other headwinds, which I'm happy to talk about, um, should really position them in a better place for next year. Well, we'll leave it there for now, but Jason, we will, the show will, the network will get you back on to talk about those things. We know the headwinds. It'd be nice to talk about some tailwinds, wouldn't it, once in a while, because I'm sure your clients would like to hear, hear that. Jason Elfstein, appreciate it. Have a Thank great you. week. Have a great weekend. Thank sure. you. All right, little changes can mean big things in technology. All right, still on California's energy woes showing no signs of easing up, while many of us are seeing gas prices down since the summer. Guess what they're paying in California? 
nearly seven bucks a gallon in certain parts of L.A. Jane Wells is on the scene and on the story, and she'll explain why. You had to break. Here's a look at the Dow heat map. Nike, we told you about it, the worst performer. In fact, headed for its worst year ever as a public company. We're back right after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, let's get a market alert now. As the snazzy graphic says, we are down on the Dow and the S&P. We are slightly higher on the NASDAQ. If you want to find a bright spot, I guess the Dow is off its low for the day. It was down 230 or whatever at one point. It's down 100 points right now, about three-tenths. NASDAQ is slightly in the green. Let's check the sectors this week. The rate-sensitive sectors, the ones sensitive to interest rate moves, utilities and real estate, they really took it on the chin. And so much for playing defense. Consumer staples or like the defensive names, third worst group this week. Look at the mega cap September swoons. Apple, its worst month in two years. Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon. You might have heard about some of these companies. Down around 9% this month. Tesla, the outperformer, it is only down 2 and actually up 20% this quarter. So Tesla standing out. But it's not all bad. I feel like the Grim Reaper up here. But it's September to remember for some names, Netflix, Twitter, and Poshmark. They have gains this month. In fact, Poshmark posting its best month ever. Biotech booming as well because of Biogen. It's on pace for its best month since 2000. After that promising data on its Alzheimer's drug, not the only one, though. Regeneron up 20%. Eli Lilly up 8%. Remember, it just hit an all-time high two days ago. Every single one of these stocks are up 10 to 20% since January. So even in the worst markets, like Jim says, there are bull markets somewhere. Let's get a CBC News update with Tyler Mathis. Brian, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. Fresh video of the tragic damage in Fort Myers Beach. Severe damage to many homes. Cars flipped over in parking lots. Governor DeSantis says rescue crews have gone door to door to more than 3,000 homes in the hardest hit areas. In San Diego, a sailor has been found not guilty of setting a fire that destroyed a billion-dollar Navy warship. Ryan Mays was charged with arson that led to the massive blaze aboard the Bonhomme Richard. G7 foreign ministers are pledging to impose steeper economic costs on Russia for annexing parts of Ukraine. The nations also say they will never recognize Russia's claim to those Ukrainian regions. On the news with Shep Smith tonight, first Cuba, then Florida, now South Carolina. Team coverage of Hurricane Ian's continuing and historic damage and the first steps toward recovery. That's tonight at 7 o'clock. Brian, back to you. Tyler, thank you very much. All right, we're getting back to the markets because you know the Fed is determined to break the back of inflation. It surely means more rate hikes. The November meeting, maybe one in December, maybe one in January. More volatility for the market. But our trader coming up with some names that can take the Fed pain in stride, including one stock that is already trading near all-time highs. In fact, we just touched on the name. Can you guess it? It's coming up with three buys and a bail. Next. All right, welcome back. Well, the Federal Reserve clearly not backing down from inflation anytime soon. Vice Chair Lael Brainerd saying this morning, quote, 
Monetary policy will need to be restrictive for some time to come to have confidence that inflation is moving back to target. For these reasons, we are committed to avoiding pulling back prematurely. End quote. That spells higher rates. She just spelled it out. And likely lower returns as the markets toil in purgatory. So where can you hide out to maybe avoid more Fed-induced pain? Let's welcome back our friend and contributor, Gina Sanchez, chief market strategist at Lido Advisors. She's got three buys that could take the Fed pain and one named bail on here. And Gina, welcome. Good to see you again. Listen, one thing we just talked about going into the break was Eli Lilly. And here's the sad part. When we when the when COVID hit, we locked down half the country locked down. We literally told people do not go outside. It was exactly the wrong thing to do. And millions of tens of millions of Americans gained significant amount of weight. Eli Lilly has got some promising new drugs to tackle what is no doubt a crisis, obesity crisis. One reason you like that stock? It's a big reason I like that stock. In fact, you know, we, we're, we're talking this morning about their Alzheimer drug, but I think the obesity drug is even bigger. You know, this is a drug that's coming on the back of a, uh, of a couple of incretin drugs that have come out, um, but, but their drug, uh, Monjoro, is basically promising to top even the best results that have come out in terms of clinical trials. It's been approved for diabetes and is on the, uh, is, is on the uh, um, docket to be approved for obesity. Um, and, and the drug not only is effective, um, but it also reverses you know, things like diabetes. Uh, it, it reduces heart risk and all sorts of other things that are eventually expensive down the road. So this is a big market for them. I think this is a huge win. Um, and Eli Lilly is, quite frankly, a company and in a sector that people really need to continue. They're not going to stop buying their drugs um, because we're in a recession. All right, moving on. Walmart, your next three buys. The stock's been hit like everything else. But again, you kind of wonder, is this counter-cyclical? I mean, things get tough. People trade down. Some people will maybe trade down to Walmart. Absolutely. You know, this is stuff that's that's affordable. You know, if, if the one thing that I don't believe that the Fed is going to be able to do is, is effectively bring down inflation. So many components of inflation are way out of the Fed's hands. You know, you look at what's happening in, with oil, what's happened, this, you know, what, what we heard about with, with the um, Nord Stream. You know, that news is is nothing that, that interest rates will make a difference on. So we could actually be in an inflationary environment even when we're in pain otherwise. And People are going to want to trade down. They're going to want to buy cheaper. Walmart is able to do that. But Walmart also has an incredible ability to manage um, their inventories. They have an amazing ability uh, to manage their costs, uh, to manage their logistics. I mean, th- this, this company yeah. doesn't have 50, $559 billion in annual revenues you know, because they do things wrong. They do things right. And this is a company that can still do well. That is not an unsmall amount of revenue. All right. And stock number three is a name that you've brought to this network, you've brought to this segment before. Hasn't responded yet, but I mean, honestly, looking five years out, Microsoft's not going away. I wish Excel would, but Microsoft is not. You know, Microsoft's not going away. And here's the other thing is, is when times get tough, the, the digital imperative gets even greater. You know, companies have to do more with less, and that's what technology is about. Also, strangely, Microsoft can compete on price. This is a company that is so diversified in what it is offering. It has also bought so many components of things that we might have paid for separately. Teams displaces Zoom. Uh, you know, they have their own CRM, displaces uh, Salesforce. So they are able to compete and compete on price, ecosystem, 
um, and wait this out. So this is a long-term play for us. So yeah, it's, it hasn't responded yet, but we think it's still a long-term play. And this is one I own personally, and I love this stock. Okay, own personally, love the stock. All right, I don't know if you remember your bail, the gap. You remember years ago, their tagline was fall into the gap. Well, I mean, investors have, right? I mean, the stock, <sighs> stock was 35 bucks a couple minutes ago. It's eight and change now. Disaster. Yeah, it is a disaster. And I mean, the characteristics of the gap, so you know, if you're sort of looking for things you want to stay away from, this is a company that is highly indebted, had very little cash on hand, cash and cash equivalents, didn't have much free cash flow, very little interest coverage, and it's not even that cheap. I mean, that, that's the crazy, well, now it is, but you know, it really, <laughs> given where it is on its balance sheet, it doesn't have a whole lot, and it's not the sort of thing, you don't need another gap sweater when you're in a recession. Um, so that's the problem that Gap has, is they just aren't really, they don't, they don't have enough extra cash. They just don't have enough of anything and a lot of debt. This is a tough time to have debt and no cash. Certainly is. Gina Sanchez, three buys and a bail. Gina, thank you. Have a good time in Chicago, by the way. Check out thank you, Brian. Mesa Urbana in Lincoln Park. It's fantastic. The family watches okay. CNBC as well. Thanks, Gina. All right, after a long, slow decline, gas prices are uh, inclined. Gas prices are declining in the United States. Well, not everywhere in the United States. California. Jane Wells lives in California. She fills up her car every day. And Jane, gas prices haven't gone down there at all. Uh, no, Brian, I want you to look real quick uh, behind this green Porsche. These guys are offloading liquid hydrogen fuel, which is free for most people in California with subsidies. If you drive my car, though, gas is 71 cents a gallon higher than a week ago. My round-trip commute to this live shot is $20. Can I expense that? The story when we come back. All right. Nationally, the price of gasoline has come well down from its highs this summer. The average American paying $3.80 a gallon, according to AAA. Yes, it's still above a year ago, but it's a little better. Except in California. In the Golden State, you might need a bar of gold to afford gasoline right now. It is well above six bucks a gallon, maybe nearing or even over seven in certain areas. And someone who has to deal with this personally is our friend Jane Wells. She joins us now. And I want to be clear, Jane, because the people kill the media like, oh, you just found the most expensive gas off the freeway. Not, oh, no. No, you didn't. No, no, this is this is typical. And at this Chevron station, gas can be as much as over seven dollars. I feel like I'm in Europe without the charm. Now, AAA is saying today in California, the average is six twenty nine. That's 15 cents shy from the record set last June. But it is the speed of these price hikes, which are dizzying. If you look, six twenty nine today is 11 cents more than yesterday. It is uh, 71 cents more than a week ago, more than a buck higher than a month ago and a buck 89 more than a year ago. 679, I was just not even, I'm changing my mind now. <laughs> You're not gonna buy now? No, I'm gonna go to Arco now. I didn't see the prices. What do you think about gas prices? Already class, but it's all over the world. You're buying hydrogen? Yes. Is it more or less expensive? No, because you got a special program on here and it's economical. 
Yep, a lot of people here fueling up on hydrogen. Now, refinery maintenance is blamed for a lot of this. California refines all of its gasoline because we have all kinds of special rules, especially during the warmer months. There are reports that some refineries delayed maintenance earlier this summer because of price hikes then, so it's all maybe happening now. And California is also unique in that it imports most of its oil, and it's cheaper to ship oil from South America than to pipe it from uh, Texas. One other thing we deal with. And one last thing, if you look at that again, okay, $6.29 uh, an average today in California, though it is less than $5, in, uh, less than $6 in some counties, compared to $3.80 nationally. Well, a lot of the reason for that difference is taxes and fees. And according to analysis by Stillwater last year in California, state and federal taxes and fees at over $1.80 per gallon, Brian. Now, I do know. I do know there are seasonal factors. My dad owned a gas station in La Habra, California when I was a child. Jane oh, Wells. Wow. Little, little, nobody cares. Anyway, there are some seasonal factors here. When, when might it get better? Uh, we do have a different blend for the winter, which is cheaper, and so prices will come down. Once all the refineries are working full force, prices will come down. But, you know, this state is trying to get rid of gas engines by 2035. They want us all to be on hydrogen or EVs, but they are asking people with EVs when it's hot to charge their cars at off-peak hours to protect California's grid. Brian? Yeah, and they're now saying, okay, don't do it at night, Stanford said, because the grid's not supported to charge at night. I just don't know when you're supposed to do it. That I, I don't know. I, 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 it's not happening in any other state. I'll just say that. Hey, at least you're not full serve only. In New Jersey, we still got full serve only. Nobody can find work. So you sit there for 10 minutes because there's one poor guy running around to 20 cars. Jane Wells, good luck. I, I'm still trying to get over La Habra. La Habra. The corner of... What is it, Whittier and I think Beach, across, near Don Knot Chevrolet. It's now a housing development, of course. And, and he put me to, I went to Sierra Vista Elementary, and he put me to work there as like nine years old. Like, I don't think he paid me. <laughs> Jane Wells, thanks very much. All right. Okay. Love Jane. All right. Lots of eco- economic problems to talk about today. We do it all the time. But Jim Chano says there's something we're not talking about, but we should. That's coming up. All right, welcome back. Putin's war in Ukraine, the European energy crisis, global bond markets going haywire, and a Wall Street that has clearly lost all confidence in the Federal Reserve and Janet Yellen. A lot going on right now. But according to famed short seller Jim Chanos, there's one other big potential sort of demon hanging over the real estate market or markets. That is Chinese real estate. Listen. If what is going on in the world, whether it's Russia, Ukraine, whether it's central banks losing control, whatever it might be, weren't happening right now, I think what would be happening in the Chinese real estate market would be front and center for investors. It is, I've long said that, that Chinese apartment prices are the most, probably after treasury bonds, the most important asset class in the world. And they are declining. All right, let's bring in Dewardrick McNeil. He is managing director and senior policy analyst at Longview Global, CNBC contributor. Dewardrick, thanks for joining us. There's a company there's, a, any, there's been some companies in China which had problems pre-COVID. They moved the market. When those stocks went down, they, they, got, they crushed the market. We've suddenly kind of forgotten about China. Is Jim correct? How, how are you, Brian? Thanks for having me. Look, I was actually sitting in the audience when Jim said that, nodding my head uh, very aggressively, yes, he is right. You know, when this first started, 
it was kind of an evergreen story. And so we got focused around a couple of companies in the property sector. This is a system-wide problem, and we should be paying more attention to it. This is not just an evergreen story. But look, the good news on this, uh, Brian, is that China knows that there's a problem. China's mortgage holders and future home uh, owners know that this is a problem. And we're starting to see some policy announcements that is looking to address some of these issues, not all of them. For example, last week, Brian, we learned that China Construction uh, Banking Corporation announced that they would set up a $4.2 billion fund to buy mm-hmm. out some of these existing assets to turn into rental properties. You know, that's an interesting idea. We learned overnight last night that the PBOC is allowing for some cities uh, to either reduce or completely eliminate uh, the minimum rate that they charge first-time uh, home buyers. So they're trying to get this sector moving again. I'm not sure, though, Brian, that that addresses all of the challenges in the sector. We still yeah. have a credit crunch. Uh, we still have existing mortgage holders waiting for their developments to be built out. And you know, uh, Brian, they've started to protest and not pay their mortgages. So there's yeah. a lot of risk still left in the sector here. Oh, yeah. And we're going to get to more of it in just one second. We sit tight. to order. got some breaking news right now. We're going to come back to you. Breaking news on Twitter with David Faber phoning in. David. Yeah, actually, I'm uh, I'm uh, live on TV. On camera. Oh, yeah. good to see you. Hi. Yeah, here I am. Hi, Brian. Happy Friday afternoon. Yeah, I didn't think I'd be back on TV, but, you know, an interesting story hit uh, about a half hour or so ago from Bloomberg, uh, and it involved the possibility of settlement talks um, and Twitter. Uh, obviously, many people who've been following this situation closely, myself included, have wondered whether, in fact, the two parties might try to come together and forge some sort of a settlement prior to going to trial in Delaware on October 17th. But I want to give people some some background here and sense as to what this story really is about. Again, Bloomberg reporting that Ari Emanuel, the super agent, of course, man who runs uh, Endeavor, uh, had basically tried to put Egon Durbin, who's a close friend of his, and Elon Musk sort of together to try to figure something out. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Emanuel is no stranger to litigation and feels quite strongly that two parties are much better off avoiding a courtroom if you can. Um, and so they were both uh, attendees at his wedding a uh, number of months ago. And my understanding is that Mr. Emanuel then followed up uh, the two of them being together at the wedding with a call to Mr. Durbin saying, you really should give it a shot here to try on your part as a member of Twitter's board of directors. Um to figure out a settlement with Elon Musk. And my understanding is, uh, based on speaking to sources, that was the extent of Mr. Emanuel's involvement in said settlement talks. Uh, Mr. Durbin did report into the board or the transaction committee of the board of directors of Twitter about the outreach from Mr. Uh, Emanuel. Um, But it is far from clear that R. Emanuel reached out to Egon Durbin on behalf of Elon Musk saying, I want to try and get a settlement. Can you reach out? As much as simply being a friend to both men. Remember, Egon Durbin, one of his first investors, uh, they've been uh, close friends, is my understanding, for quite some period of time, as he has as well with Elon Musk. People may remember, of course, the pictures of uh, Ari Emanuel uh, and Mr. Musk on the, on the back of a boat in the Mediterranean. Uh, and so as a friend to both, I think he's trying to bring them both together to avoid Uh, the inside of a courtroom, Brian. Um, But at this point, uh, what many market participants have been waiting for, the serious settlement talks that many still believe could possibly take place, 
my understanding, and again, here it becomes a bit more hard to fully grasp because you never know when lawyers are talking to each other in some way, but serious settlement talks do not appear to be underway between Twitter uh, and Mr. Musk. So uh, interesting uh, attempt here by uh, Mr. Emanuel, simply as a good friend to both of these gentlemen, one who's on the board of Twitter and one, of course, who's supposed to buy Twitter, but doesn't want to, Mr. Musk saying, hey, you guys should try and figure something out. Mr. Durbin reporting that to the board. Much of this, by the way, reported by Bloomberg. But again, the market seemed to be taking it perhaps as a real sign of serious efforts toward a settlement that would involve many board members, lawyers, Mr. Musk's law, uh, law team as well. That does not appear to be the case, at least uh, from what I am hearing from various people close to the situation. And the Brian? stock, thank you, David. The stock is moving. And I love the best part about that story is on the back of a yacht in the Mediterranean, as one does. That's, that's where all things happen. <laughs> David Faber, appreciate that popping back on TV. Duarte, go back to you. Um, we were talking about Chinese real estate and the risks here. Is this going to be like a Communist Party bailout? The Communist Party... There, I guess you call it an election. I don't want to call it an election, but, you know, where they basically decide President Xi is going to be King Xi for the rest of his life. That's coming up in a few weeks. Do things flip after that or continue to deteriorate? Well, I think uh, we're going to see perhaps some new policy approaches to try and, and really juice the economy again. It's unsure what, what those uh, particular policies will be. But this sector, uh, to be fair, uh, Brian, it's going to have to find uh, some priorities on that list of things. The real estate sector, the property development sector is such an important part of China's economy, but it also has political and other social uh, uh, implications as well. You cannot get your demographic problem together if new homeowners can't buy homes, move out of mom and pop's house and start their own families. So there's a lot of reasons to focus on this sector. The question is, are these gradual approaches that we're seeing now enough to restore the faith and confidence for new buyers, for offshore investors, for onshore investors yeah. in this sector. And I just don't know that the gradual approach is going to do it. Well, I, I think it's a critical story we have not talked a lot about, but we're glad you came on. We cut you a little bit short to Wardrick. We'll have you back on soon. Have a good Friday. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. All right. So we know this. Stocks, most of them, are down. Inflation is high. And yet the dollar is stronger than it's been in years. Or maybe that's why those things are happening. So Americans who are on the hunt for yield are giving up maybe investing here and deciding they might find a cool two-bedroom, eight-bedroom flat in Notting Hill, hope to spot Hugh Grant at his bookstore, maybe run into Julia Roberts, Robert Frank, London Real Estate, looking cheap again? Yeah, Brian, there is an upside to this British currency crisis, and that is for American real estate buyers. A year ago, a one million pound apartment in London or Notting Hill costs 1.3 million US dollars. Today, that will be 1.1 million, a $200,000 savings due to that weaker pound. You add in the decline in home prices in the UK, you now have discounts of 20% or more. Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone just bought a 2,500 acre estate in West London for 80 million pounds. That's a $20 million savings just based on currency. Knight Frank, the UK brokerage firm, says the number of U.S. buyers now looking in the U.K. is up over 20%. They're looking at everything from 400,000 pied-à-terres in London to those big country estates. Since their peak in 2014, the combined price and currency drops give you discounts of over 50% in neighborhoods like Knightsbridge and Notting Hill. So what do you get for your U.S. dollar right now? 
This Georgian townhouse in London has 11 bedrooms, nine baths, and an indoor pool. Price tag, 28.5 million pounds. That's $5 million less than a year ago just because of that currency swing. If you're into the country estates, well, this 1,900-acre estate called Adlington Hall can be yours for 30 million pounds. It's about $33 million. It's been in the same family for 700 years. It's got six farms, 27 homes, and it was once owned by King Henry III. Brian, you save over $6 million just on the currency. 700 years in the same? I was happy to find a car yeah. that had one owner in eight years. <laughs> 700 years and it goes and back it to Henry VIII? The How do you not buy? Why don't you buy Henry that? Henry III. I'll come visit. You buy it. Yeah, Henry the. Henry III. It was owned by the crown in the, in the 1200s. And, uh, you know, for $30 million, 1,900 acres, compared to what you get around New York, that's a good deal. That, I mean, they chased off the hobbits. Probably, probably need some work, though. Oh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, they, they killed Smog the dragon, <laughs> chased off the hobbits to take that place. A lot of history. <laughs> Robert Frank, appreciate it very much. Robert, thank you. All right. So, before we go, let's try to, it's been a, like a lot of bad news, right? Let's try to end things on a hopeful note for stocks. And maybe I'll start a new segment here today called Sully Side Up. Why not? Because everyone says everything I write is depressing. So here you go. Some good news. After this month, one of the worst months for stocks ever, well, check this out. According to Ryan Dietrich at Carson Investment Group, including this year, there have been seven Septembers where the S&P 500 has fallen more than 8%, 1974, 86, 01, and 02, 08, 2011, and now. In five of those six times, the index roared back a bit in October with a median return of 7%. Only in 2008, financial crisis, did the S&P continue to fall? We got a 16% pop in 1974. Does it mean it'll happen this year? No. But five out of six, not some bad history. Hey, wanted to leave you with a little bit of good news to feel positive. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 